everyone. Welcome back. Welcome back. Or thanks for joining us. Yes. So I've got a little bit of a, a long in for you. So it's about a jewel heist, you guys. And it's one of the most epic jewel heists that's ever gone down in history that I had no idea anything about. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And the really most interesting thing about it is it was these two freaking like hippie surfer dudes that went and robbed the New York Hall of Gyms or whatever. Like this, ep- like JP Morgan donated all of these. Oh, wow. Literally, literally price. No, like priceless. Like they can't put a price on these mm-hmm. gyms because they're so worth so much. That's why he donated them to the museum because oh, that makes that's, sense. you know. So, okay. Jack Murphy was born in Oceanside, California. He was an only child, and his father worked as a telephone company lineman. That is a very courageous job. As a child, Murphy enjoyed the violin and surfing. His family moved to Pittsburgh when he was in high school. According to Murphy, he played violin with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra and won a tennis scholarship to the University of Pittsburgh. In 1955, he moved to Miami, Florida, where he worked at hotels, and he married Gloria Sostick in 1957. And they had two children before divorcing in 1962. And the reason that this is relevant, because where he went after that. But here he married, opened a surf shop in Indie Atlantic, Florida. Jack Murphy and his partner, Alan Kuhn, were easygoing beach boys who gave swimming lessons at the Miami Beach hotels and had a lucrative second occupation, jewel thieves. Mm, mm. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. In 1964, bored with preying on wealthy divorcees and tourists, they decided to go to Manhattan and pull off the most audacious jewel heist of the last century. Mm -hmm. And all of that hundred years, it was like the most insane. They're just bored. Like, hey, let's just go do this. They're bored. They're like, um, I need a little thrill. Yeah. On the evening of October 29th, 1964, they decided to climb up the stone walls of the American Museum of Natural History and broke in through a window and stole, like I said, priceless gems from the J.P. Morgan Jewel Collection, one of which, the Star of India Sapphire. This was like the most, of all of the ones that they stole, this was like the most priceless one, I don't know. Then there was the DeLong Star Ruby and Fistfuls of Diamonds and Emeralds, which I would have been going after those emeralds for sure. Love me some emeralds. Murphy... Um, in an interview with the New York Times, by the way, which is one of my sources as well as the Vanity Fair and Wikipedia, throwing that in there because I forgot. <laughs> so at age seventy-seven, he did this. He did this uh, interview with the New York Times, and he explains, just like mountain climbers and skiers, as a jewel thief, you go for the challenge. It's dangerous, it's glamorous, and there's an adrenaline rush. We just couldn't keep doing Palm Beach. Ah, just couldn't keep doing Palm Beach. Palm Beach, you just weren't enough. Nope. I'm sorry. Nice Didn't practice, do it enough though. For him. <laughs> <laughs> so they they were apprehended um, within the within 48 hours of the robbery. The two men, plus they had an accomplice, Roger Clark, who became and they <laughs> they became national folk heroes. Oh, <laughs> like it literally was like the strangest thing because I guess because it was so scandalous and just like. Bizarre. No one thought it would ha- could happen. No, because this is one of the most prestigious museums in the world, you mm-hmm. know, even at that time, probably especially at that time. Upon their arrest, the three boys taunted and outwitted the authorities. Federal and state prosecutors vied to retrieve the jewels, convening separate grand juries and stealing each other's witnesses. Only after a bizarre series of events, including a Miami chase scene that included Coon jumping out of a hotel window, double dealing by a fence, 
and ransom money paid by one of the America by one of America's richest businessmen, where most of the jewels were eventually recovered. The three Beach Boys who pled guilty spent more than two years at Rikers Island. Two years. Two years. They spent two years. After this happened, though, they went on to complete some some more um, interesting acts. Okay, I guess is the way to put it. So Jack Murphy, his name that his like a nickname, I guess, is Murph the Surf, right? Like that's they've actually made a movie about this jewelry heist, and that's what it's called is Murph the Surf, and so that's like his famous name, I guess. Okay, right. So he he being a very charismatic person who could talk very quickly, which I, if you have ever watched Gilmore Girls, you can you can figure out why that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when because you know how Lorelai is, she can talk anyone to, into anything just yeah. because she just like talks so fast. By the time she's done, you're like, what, what just, happened? just happened? <laughs> what did I just agree to? But I think he was that kind of guy, which, so he decided to become a prison evangelist and travel the country. So he would go and discuss his rap sheet and urged convicts to find God. He was like, I don't know, that doesn't matter. I wasn't always the kindly white-haired grandfather that you see before you now, he says. These days he goes to comic extremes to convey that he is a law-abiding citizen. The fear of even parking tickets upsets the former second story man. I don't want to get in trouble with the Miami cops, he says. I've always had an I've always had enough trouble here. So Alan Kuhn, however, spent the the decades after this doing everything possible to be invisible. He like didn't have a listed phone. He lived in a tiny little mountain town in northern in Northern California. Basically, he just kind of like dipped out. He became really into like the new age spirituality. He had like UFOs, blah, 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 blah. He was a childless widower. And so he never had kids and his wife died. That's so sad. Yeah, it's real sad, but he likes pot. So he's got that going for him. Oh, hippy dippy. Yeah. He was given a prescription to grow it. So he's like, oh, he's set. Yeah. He's like having some fun. Although he actually did jail time in the late 60s for possession of a joint. Oh. And that's quite the turn of events, if you imagine, like, being alive during that time and, like, getting in trouble. For, for a little joint. For a little joint and doing probably some serious jail time. Like, I imagine More that was pretty serious. More jail time than the, the, the two years that he <laughs> For <laughs> fucking stealing priceless jewels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's actually, that tells you how fucked up that law is. I mean, yeah. that makes zero sense whatsoever. And then to go from that to, like... You know, 30, 40 years later, growing a big ass pot farm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a turn of events. Uh-huh. It's like, it's almost like a mom story, you know? Because back in the day, back in mom, my day, back in my day, mom. Anyways. Okay. So, you know, he's got his, his, his fun stuff and he's cool. And, but he says it was never about like, for him, it was, it was just a thrill. Like, it was just one of their things that they were always poor. He never, like, yeah, money is great, but money's here today, gone tomorrow kind yeah. of thing. You know, I didn't have it yesterday. Don't have it tomorrow. It's not going to change my life, anything yeah. kind, kind of thing. Okay, anyways. All right. So we're about to get into the, like, the juicy deets now, okay? I kind of did this backwards, you guys. My bad. <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. It's cool. We're getting it. Um, so they decided to go and hop on a train and going down to places and they're robbing places uh, one night he joined a friend on a boat ride to rob a mansion, earning a quick 15K. Oh, as, just a quick uh, Just 15K. his share of what they stole. So obviously easy money was like very appealing. I mean, I get it. 
I couldn't do that, but I get the idea of like, hey, 15,000 bucks for a night's work. Yeah, you get an adrenaline rush. That's like half what I make a year. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, but really. <laughs> yeah, so that's fun. And then, uh, God, I'm going to have fun editing this week. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Murphy and Kuhn, who had mutual friends, soon that's when they began to work together um, to go and plunder the city. A, bell, a bellman or a manicurist might tip them off that a tourist had left their room. A crooked insurance agent might know which rich locals had up uh, had upped jewelry writers. I guess like if they have someone taking jewelry for them places, like a jewelry delivery person. Or they probably are like adding, because you said an insurance person. They, oh, they don't use weapons. They never use weapons. I just don't think it's necessary to take something forcibly from someone else. Okay. So I guess you just take it when they don't know. Okay. Like if you get caught, oh, well, that's your own fault. Just don't get caught. Yep. Or bail. Run. Yeah. What's that song? No. We're just going to keep telling the story. (laughs) (laughs) So then they found this fella who was a house painter named Roger Clark. And they they recruited him to join their crew. He was a native of Meridian, Connecticut. And he had been a high school lifeguard before joining the Navy. Which, this will come in quite handy. So after finishing his service, he briefly tried the 9 to 5 life and was like... Yeah, not for me. So then he took on like a bunch of gig work and that's when they found like that's when they met up with him and they said he was like a real quiet guy, very cool, very calm. So basically he was like like the lookout, like the like the getaway driver kind of thing. It didn't take long for Coon and Murphy to become persons of interest, however, in the Florida law enforcement because they were questioned for several robberies and arrested for vagrancy. They got off with the help of local mob lawyer Harvey St. John, uh, but by the fall of 1964, the authorities in Miami appeared to be closing in. The FBI would later claim that they had been trailing Coon and Murphy for six months, or leaving town seemed prudent. So it didn't really matter if they left town. Mm-hmm. Then they came to visit Manhattan, and, you know, the reasons for it were, like, they just, they had different reasons for going to Manhattan, but they ended up there. Coon insists that the trip was organized specifically to steal the American Museum of Natural History Gems Collection. But Murphy says that they had their sights set on robbing a Hampton socialite. And then the museum was nowhere on the agenda. And I guess it just became on the agenda. Which you'll see why. Because even if if they hadn't planned on it, and this isn't something that if I was walking down the streets, I would be observant to. But I guess, I guess this, this is your kind of thing. You're going to look for weaknesses in those kind of places. Yeah. And how you can, like, how would I infiltrate if i could you know it's like charles because he's he was an electrician and so whenever he goes into buildings he's like oh my god that wire looks really bad oh look they did right. that bad so like <laughs> i would never notice those things but because, but because he has that's the eye thing for, yeah yeah right so i could see that so i think that might have had something to plan so even if it wasn't planned it would have been planned if they would have seen this because <laughs> i mean again this was the 1960s but you'll just see how absolutely ridiculous this is so arriving in new york and Coon's white Cadillac, you know, rolling up in Stizzle. Cadillacs were like the shit back then. I mean, they're cool Stizzle. now, too. Yeah, yeah. So they're in their Cadillac, putting some miles on it. Let's just say they're coming, rolling up in their caddy. <laughs> yeah. With a fatty. I hate you. <laughs> he came in and with his white Cadillac. That's what it really says. <laughs> Um, so they checked into the Stanhope Hotel where they were joined by Clark and they visited museums, the World's Flair jazz clubs, you yeah. know, 
And they were dan- they were in their Florida attire, so I'm imagining like you know like the beefy beef roll. What is it? Hamburger meat? What do they call it when the chesticles is all cut? Like their hair is all like the. So deep, they have their shirt unbuttoned the neck to yeah. where they have their they're, hair showing. They're beefy like. And I'm then, like, using the gold real wor- words. <laughs> You're using non. Just translating here. Yes. And then they got the gold chain. Drip I stuff. don't think that's what they called it back then. Yeah. So I'm thinking in my head, like, what's that one movie called? Like Miami style. Yeah, Miami. You know, okay. like. Like Dexter. From the 60s, though. Okay. So not Dexter. But, like, how they just kind of like, dress rewind. cash. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And they're cool, I guess. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is a quote from Murphy. He says. He dressed like he was part of a Shriners convention. Argyle socks, a yellow jacket, and a fancy shirt. Oh. I said, get a dark outfit. Like, Let's not was stand not, out. Yeah. Like, what are you wearing? <laughs> and he's over here all, like, casual, you uh-huh. know. And, and he's all, like. Yeah. Like a peacock. And Florida, look at my. Just kidding. I don't know what he said. He might have not said anything. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> so what are we doing? We're doing things. Where the fuck am I? Oh, here we are. Okay. So. After moving to cheaper residential lodging, the Cambridge House Hotel on West 86th Street near Riverside Park, the three men continued staking out the American Museum of Natural History. We hid to see when the guards came around the change of their shift. They were mesmerized by the stones donated by J.P. Morgan in 1901. Morgan had hired a Tiffany's gemologist, George Frederick Kuntz, to put together the collection. The Blue Star of India had been mined in Ceylon 300 years ago and at 563 carats. Oh, I was wrong. It was the size of a golf ball. Oh, that's a little bit bigger than what I said. The Eagle Diamond was was discovered in 1876 by a farmer in Wisconsin. Uh, Okay. He wasn't a farmer after that. No. (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine? Uh, socialite Edith Hagen DeLong, the, the daughter of a copper magnate, had sub- subsequently given the museum a gorgeous red, I don't know this word, cabacon, it's a cut of whatever that cut is in di- gemstones. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? Sure. What shape is it? Is it like a circle? I think it's a cir- like a, kind of like a that. Okay, because everyone can see that. Yeah, so like a circle. Like an oval circle. Ovalish circle. Cool. But I don't really know because I'm, I used to know these things, but I don't. You're remember. not a Tiffany's gemologist. No, definitely not. I did do a stint, however, of like, uh, what do they call it? Were you like hyper focused on shit? Because I do that on everything. And yeah. I was real hyper focused on gemstones for a while. Oh, okay. And I actually knew these things, but I don't remember anymore. Okay. Stupid thing about hyper focusing is by the time you move on to something else, you forget the shit that you learned. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, anyways, they found this beautiful red whatever cut ruby unearthed in Burma in the 1930s. Uh, the Miami men, the Miami men, made a memorable impression on the Cambridge House staff, throwing ruckus parties at their penthouse suite. Oh, um, as Nora Ephron later recounted to in the Post, they tipped a bellboy a hundred dollars for delivering liquor. At least they were generous. Yeah. Once they bought two cases of soda pop just to get the bottle caps for a game, which they flipped the caps at the wall. (laughs) That's, see, that's like my kind of money. You know, like just. Stupid money. Stupid. Like I want, if I want to fucking play a game right now, oh my God, we don't have any bottle caps. Let's go buy a couple cases of whatever. Tip the bellman a hundred dollars. Cool. Thanks, buddy. (laughs) We're just going to flip these at the wall now. Thanks, bruh. (laughs) Uh, so then they did that 
Um, blibbity, blibbity, blah. Okay, so Janet, now we got a cue in this girl because she is important. Janet Florkowitz, Florkowitz, it's very interesting. It took me a long time to learn how to say that. <laughs> uh, who is a beautiful 19-year-old Staten Island native who was sharing an apartment there with a girlfriend began to spend time with Kuhn, accompanying him to the museum. The brunette would later be referred to as, uh, in the press as Kuhn's girlfriend. Janet was always kind of a, re- a rebel, says her cousin, Linda Rathone. Who is it? Who cares? Uh, <laughs> who cares about Linda? <laughs> I'm Fuck sorry, Linda. Linda. <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> Plans are finalized. And then Murphy got cold feet. He worried that, that they had been indiscreet and recalls telling his companions that too many people know me. That's why I can never be like a criminal because I have such a, like, I just get too excited. I have to tell people things. Same. <laughs> but anyways... He's like, I knew it could be done. And then they decided, let's just do it. Let's just go. Let's just do it. So let's Thursday. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. I'm not, gonna, I'm not really going to do it. I was just thinking about doing yeah. it. But, like, I did it. <laughs> and they did. And, it, I mean, listen, I'm not saying that you should go and rob a freaking natural history museum. Like, I just feel like that's a terrible thing. But, I mean... They didn't really serve very much time, and most of the gems were returned. And what a fucking story to tell for your whole life! Like, and let, okay, let's get into it because let me just okay. Sorry, I'm terrible <laughs> because this is what's so funny. It's just like how easy this was. So okay, they drove the Cadillac to the back of the museum, dropped off. Uh, that was Clark. Clark was the driver. You know, okay, the quiet boy. He drove Coon and Murphy. And they climbed over this spiked steel fence into the courtyard. And then they had to climb up a 120-foot museum wall. So they, they climbed. scaled the building. Yes, they did. Climbed it up until they reached a ledge. But nobody thought, like, Somebody you were going to climb up a fucking museum wall and break in, I guess. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but they did. They did. So It was just, like, ready for them. Oh, Totally. So he climbed up until, Coon climbed up until he reached a ledge, then lowered the rope for Murphy, who pulled himself up. So they slipped into the J.P. Morgan Hall of Gems and Minerals. With 25-foot ceilings and a metal gate locking it off from the rest of the museum, the room was isolated and pristine. So literally, like, they were in there. Oh, okay. They, like, there was, the only way out was up. Oh, uh-oh. So he, Kuhn says, we sat there for a while, making sure that the guards weren't coming, and then they used tape and glass cutters to open the display cases to get the jewels, so that way there wasn't, like, any loud crashes from breaking the glass, oh, you know? Yeah. When they lifted out the gyms, the room remained eerily silent. I was sure there was alarms, but they were just old. <laughs> he says, we got lucky. The wire on the alarms had been disconnected, and the museum staff scarcely monitored the valuables. The guards. <laughs> The guards did not make their rounds in a proper fashion, wrote Detective Richard Moline in his account of the investigation. No one heard or saw the thieves until as they slipped back into the night. Yeah. At 9.15 a.m. the next morning, Coon Murphy and Florkowitz boarded an Eastern Airlines flight from JFK to Miami, traveling under assumed names. Florkowitz was carrying a distinctive yellow case, later insisting that Coon and Murphy had given it to her and that she had no idea what was inside it. Shortly before 10, I doubt that shit. She knew. She was boning him. She knew. She was all juicy over those gyms. You know she was. You're gross. (laughs) I don't like that. (laughs) You don't have to like it, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Uh Bloopity bloop. Shortly before 10, the trio was in the air. Museum guard John House. So they didn't know until 10 a.m. the next morning. Uh, And they unlocked the gates. Yeah. So they went 
it doesn't say what time they went, but obviously it was at night. Like, it had been night. a while. Yeah. Um, so I caught the case, remembers then Detective Jack McNally. The place was a wreck. We had to notify the district commander. The district commander notified the borough chief. The borough chief notified the police commissioner. All the big bosses started showing up. Reporters swarmed the building. One detective shouted to another, better keep the boys away from these cases or we'll have nothing but photographers prints all over. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what they sound like. (laughs) They're from New York, so I doubt they have a Texas accent. (laughs) I don't know. I don't. I don't have a good New York accent. I should work it's on okay. that. It's okay. Just keep going. Gotcha. At a press conference, the museum director. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> I'd like to hear this press conference. Museum director Dr. James Oliver blamed the poor security on city budget cuts oh. and, and admitted that the missing gems were not insured. Oh shit! <clears throat> yeah, saying you cannot take items such as these, which are priceless, and get insurance on them. They're so dumb. Yeah. The criminal or the crime touched off an international manhunt for a master burglar who has written a chapter in crime history that that rivals anything in fiction. Guards at airports and seaports and border crossovers were alerted. Interpol was asked to alert its far-flung operatives. I feel like if it's 10 o'clock oh. the next day, they're gone. Like, why even yeah. put the efforts to do all that? <laughs> I mean, I would still try, but... True, but the, it's just unless kind you of like... find them, they're, and they didn't... I think they only got, like, two-thirds of the gems back. I don't think they got oh. all of them back. But they got the, the big ones. The ones that they didn't was, like, the ones that were just... Yeah, they were big and pretty, but they weren't, like... Priceless. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, because, well, I'm sure we'll read this again once I get there, but... I mean, think about it. You're gonna you're gonna steal one of the like most world renowned gems in the whole like. It's hard to sell. Yeah, yeah. People are like, there's one and there's one. People are gonna know that you're the yeah. one who stole it. So you can't really even like the the dirty dogs who you can trust. Like, hey, come sell these for me. They're gonna be like, yo, I can't sell that. It's too yeah. hot. Yeah. No. But the other ones that were just big, regular, yeah, yeah, like diamonds and emeralds and stuff. They could they could sell those. In Manhattan, the following evening, Vice Squad Detective James Wash was patrolling the Upper West Side when he was waved over by the front desk clerk of the Cambridge Hotel. The employee confided that there were three guys in this place who were spending money like wild. Meanwhile, Janet Florkowitz's roommate had received a disturbing call from her and subsequently called the authorities. Janet had called stating that she was being held in Florida against her will and sounded very frightened. Detectives Melina McNally went to Cambridge House to investigate bull tips, and when, and the police woke up a judge to secure a search warrant. At the hotel suite, they discovered sneakers embedded with glass, photos of several museums, burglary tools, scales, and a few packets of heroin. Why did they leave all that behind? Um, I don't have an answer. I'm assuming... They're dumb. They're dumb. I mean, listen... They did it for the thrill. They didn't do it because it was like a methodical, well thought out kind of so they just plan. Like, it was like on the like they just were doing it just to see if they could do it, basically. Yeah, and I feel like they just dipped out and did obviously did not think about any of that shit because it wasn't even on their mind. Probably. No, like they didn't. Clearly, these are not Harvard graduates. Just <laughs> say that. That's I'm gonna be like I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just like if you're gonna do a big crime, do a big plan. Mm-hmm. Anyways, at least it was easy for them to get them. Yeah. <laughs> it was, was kind of just handed to them, basically. It really was. It was like, please come steal me. Mm-hmm. 
I bet the museum made a lot of money after that, though. People wanting to come see the crime scene. Oh, yeah. Kind of like, and that's they, where they stole the And gyms. once they got them back, too, I bet. Like, mm-hmm. Huh. That's, I didn't think about that, but yeah, you're probably right. Curious to see if anyone returned, McNally spent the night in the penthouse. The next morning, Clark, who had driven to Connecticut to visit his family, returned accompanied by a male friend. They came into the apartment and they caught me in the bathroom washing up, McNally recalls. I had to get my gun and my shield, and then I told them that they were under arrest. At the local precinct house, the police pressed Clark about his whereabouts. Clark, for a short time, denied any complicity or knowledge of the burglary of the museum. After some psychology, he did make full admissions on the part he played and implicated Kuhn and Murphy as his accomplices. Clark later claimed in a deposition aimed to to quash his confession that he had been a victim of police brutality. I was beaten and assaulted by one of them who kicked me with his booted feet and struck me and jabbed me with a blackjack. Uh, what's a blackjack? I don't know. I thought it was it's a like card baton? game. Nah, that's probably what it is. Ah. Yeah. He was indicted on charges of drug possession and possession of burglary tools, and he pled not guilty and was released on a $12,000 bond. The Manhattan police contacted their Miami counterparts. Eight lawmen burst into the Brickle Avenue apartment. Murphy and his girlfriend, Sutera, and Forkowitz were there, but Coon had run off out for an errand. He returned to find his home under siege. The FBI came in and tore my place to pieces, recalls Coon, but I had hidden the jewels in the hallway outside my apartment overhead in the ceiling. Mem- uh, Murphy's memory differs. He said the jewels were actually in a garbage can inside the apartment. Either way, the cops did not find the gym. Sutera and Forkowitz were allowed to leave, but as soon as Forkowitz um, arrived in New York, she was arrested and placed under guard in protective custody at a hotel. Murphy and Coon spent several nights in Miami jail charged with the interstate transportation of stolen property. Upon being released on bail, the duo gave wide, wise-cracking press conference in the office of lawyer uh, Harvey St. John. They were extradited to Manhattan to face charges of first-degree burglary and possession of burglary tools. The three men were treated like celebrities. Prosecutor Maurice Najari was astonished by the public reaction. They were the bad guys, but the papers had played them as heroic characters. The crowds cheered for them as they walked by. Uh, (laughs) I mean, mean, you got to give it to them. That was quite a feat. Yeah. Like, nobody got hurt. It's not like anybody died. It was just some fucking rich dude's pretties that he... I'm not saying you should go steal it again, but I'm just saying, like, I can... I'd be like, oh, that was a good one, bro. (laughs) Like, good job. They make... Like movies after this kinds of crap. Yeah. Like they literally we did love. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I mean these were the real life like Danny Ocean and yeah. whatever Brad Pitt's name is on there. I don't know. What's his name? I've never watched Ocean's Eleven. I feel like I just disappoint every <sighs> week. Anyways. I feel like I am the disappointment because I am the sister and so we're gonna have an Ocean's Marathon Monday. Okay. And then you're gonna want to go steal some some shit or some yeah. go go. What is, what is one of those Fabergé eggs? We steal one of those Fabergé eggs when it's, like, priceless. and Let's do it. We should. Not. And, and oh, well, there's this one scene where they, like, you know how they have, like, the lasers, the mm-hmm. lasers, and you have to, like, and there's Screw this, it. like, ninja guy, and he's, like, but the yeah. song when he does it, and all of you who have seen this, you know what I'm talking about. Like, that, every time I hear that song, it makes you just want to get down and, like, duck through some lasers or some shit. It's a, <laughs> it's a good song. Anyways, oh, she doesn't get it, you guys, but you do. I know that you're laughing at me like I'm, you know, but you get it, And for those that don't, you're not alone. (laughs) Okay, so let's move along. So this chick, you know, Florkowitz chick, she was like, 
holed up in a hotel because they're like, yo, you're not going to run away. We're going to keep you. Oh, so she um, really was, like, <clears throat> being held hostage. Pretty much. So um, she wasn't just making it up. Oh, no. I'm talking about the police. They oh. extradited her back to Manhattan, and they have her in a little... Oh, so I she, she won't run away. Roommate. She had a strong dislike for the police department and objected to being kept a prisoner. As her cousin recalls, my father was a police officer... Police officer? Same. <laughs> yeah. My, my father was a police officer on Staten Island at the time, and he tried to do what he could, but he was unable to secure her release. Her photograph in sunglasses with her head bowed appeared on the front page of the New York Journal American on the day she arrived at the courthouse to testify before the grand jury about the robbery. A few days later, she recanted, claiming that she had testified under duress. Girl and Jim theft assert she lied. Headline, the New York Times article on November 26, 1964. Her lawyer insisted that the police had threatened Vorkowitz with jail if she did not cooperate and that she, that she was so frightened that she made this up. Najari opposed her lawyer's request for $5,000 in bail, telling the judge that the Beach Boys had sought to learn about her whereabouts and cautioning that if she were released, her life might be in danger. She was the only witness I had and, her, and she had turned on me, Najari says. Judge Joseph Safarite set her bill at $25,000, the equivalent of around $190,000 today, saying that Forkwitz was young and without mature judgment and was a risk if freed on bail. She remained in protective custody for three long months at the East 26th Street Hotel, according to an Associated Press story. This was a hotel and not jail. Yeah, which I'm not, I'm not, maybe it's because she was more of a witness than an active participant because she's claiming that she didn't know what was in the gyms and she didn't know what was going on. Her family members declining to reveal her current whereabouts say the experience was, so this is like, we're fast forwarding to present time where she's doing, this is an interview with the New York Times, okay? And they say, this is a family member, says that the experience was harrowing for a naive teenager and haunts her to this day. Contacted in October, a few months before the 50th anniversary of the robbery, a Staten Island relative who remains in touch says, she would rather forget about it. When she sees something on the news that upsets her, she's happy in her life now. She didn't deserve the treatment she got at the time, and she trusted these guys who just used her. Kuhn now regrets what happened to Florkowitz. I would love to find her and apologize and do anything I can to make this right. She was an innocent bystander. Once back in Miami, the thieves were under surveillance, but Kuhn says that nonetheless that he nonetheless managed to sell the Eagle Diamond and some of the smaller jewels. Oh, so he did sell he one did of the He did sell priceless. one, I guess, but not the... I think there was a couple other ones that he didn't, though. Yeah. But he says that the Fitz High Gordon insisted that the marquee jewels were too hot to handle. Concluding that his apartment was not a safe hiding place, Kuhn turned to a yacht broker and former conspirator Dickie Pearson, hoping for honor among thieves. Dick had been my partner, he said. I buried some of the stones in his backyard, which obviously was a decision he would regret, regret when a few weeks later... Masked men burst into the Pearson's house and demanded the jewels and pistol-whipped Pearson, but left empty-handed. Oh. But, I mean, some of the jewels ended up missing, so. The Miami police tracked down um, even the most absurd tips. In Manhattan, federal and state prosecutors fought over key witnesses such as Jordan. To pressure the thieves, Najari began to reinvestigate cold cases in Manhattan and asked the Miami police for leads. This clerk at at the Aliquin Hotel belatedly identified Murphy as the man who admits robbed him of $250 in July of 1964. Okay. This is a tip that they, like... Followed up on. $260. And 19 yeah. Uh, I've never been to the Aliquin in my life, insists Murphy, who freely admits to other crimes, 
So he's like, this dude's just pulling shit out of his ass. Yeah. So basically, those were those charges got dropped because they didn't have any evidence of it. And when the case appeared to be going nowhere, Najari hit publicity pager. Researching unsolved Miami cases, he saw that Eva Gabor and her husband, stockbroker Richard Brown, had been pistol whipped at a racket club in Miami in January of 1964. And her $25,000 diamond ring was stolen. Eva Gabor, who was in New York, picked out the duo picked the duo out of the lineup. Even though the crime had occurred in Florida, Najari convinced a New York jury to indict the thieves. At the hearing, Manhattan defense lawyer Gilbert Rosenthal argued that Kuhn's photo had been in practically every newspaper in the country and that Gabor and her husband were trying to get into the publicity act. Mm-hmm. She has a $25,000 diamond ring. You really think she's worried about... Mm-hmm. Gabor's status as a celebrity crime victim won her an appearance on the Johnny Carson. The charges were dropped later after Gabor refused to turn up for trial, claiming that she was too busy filming Green Acres in Los Angeles. Oh, my God. So clearly she was just so, like, yeah. desperate for attention with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Najuri asked Najuri if he ever believed that the Beach Boys robbed Gabor, and he slyly replies, it served my purposes. Basically, it was just something to keep them on hold until they could figure out the other stuff because they didn't even though they had all this evidence in that hotel room none of that evidence directly connects them them to i mean yeah it's suspicious and yeah they have burglary tools so they can get them on that but as far as connecting them to that actual yeah there's nothing there you know Mm -hmm. so this is where it gets funny so on january 5th of 1965 justice mitchell schwetzer responded to new charges by raising the bell up to 150,000 for each of the beach boys i love that that they're referred to as beach Mm -hmm. boys Unable to come up with the money, the three men were taken to the tombs. Kuhn immediately decided to make a deal. Jack did not want to do it, he recalls. He would have toughed it out, but I think we would still be in prison if we hadn't given the jewels back. The warden called Najuri saying, a prisoner wants to see you, and Kuhn was shown in. In Najuri's words, we hit the jackpot. Kuhn offered to retrieve the jewels in return for a lighter sentence. Najuri agreed to the recommended leniency, and that night, Kuhn and Najuri... And three detectives, McNally, Moline, and uh, Peter Meenan, flew to Miami at the Florida airport. Uh, <laughs> at the Florida airport, Coon boxed at the side of the black sedan rental car. Oh. He did not like it. He's like, no. Where's my caddy? Yeah. So McNally says, he didn't like the car I got him, so I had to get him a red convertible. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Kim led the law enforcement authorities all over Miami Beach, making hush-hush calls and hitting the bars for supposed meetings, quote. He and his entourage were chased by dozens of reporters. Frustrated with Coon stalling, Melina McNally invited Fence High Gordon to dinner at the Holiday Inn. He said that he would do anything he could to help us as long as he did not get involved in the conspiracy and subject, subject himself to any prosecution. The breakthrough came at three with a 3 a.m. phone call to the University Inn where Kuhn and the lawman were staying. Gordon picked up the detective Moline and drove to the hot shop. The odd couple went inside briefly and they looked. Uh, and when they returned to the automobile, they found a note along a key directing them to the Trailways bus station and a locker number 0911. Gordon stuffed the incriminating note in his mouth and ate it. At the terminal, Moline retrieved two damp bags. The police detectives and the jury insist that Kuhn was not involved in the recovery of the jewels and instead was glued to the TV, but Kuhn had his own version of the story, which differs from every other newspaper account from that era, and he cannot offer proof. But he says, they let me go. I was their only salvation. I knew where the jewels were. I went to Dick Pearson's and got the shovel and dug them up. 
Pearson died in 1990, and Kuhn's version is impossible to substantiate. And the jury insists that's not true. We never let him out of our sight. So I don't know. When the contents of the grubbly bags were spilled onto the coffee table at the university inn, the jury says he felt elation at the sight of the Star of India. So these are all different ones. The Star of India, the Midnight Star, a Sapphire, five emeralds, and two aquamarines. But Kuhn did a double take. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. The DeLong Star Ruby was missing. He speculated that Pearson had dug up the jewels er- earlier and grabbed the, the ruby. Uh, no one had thought to, to bring a jewel case. So instead, he put the jewels in a sanitary napkin bag and oh. took them to the airport. Okay. <laughs> uh, here we are with a fortune in our pockets, and we don't know who's chasing us. The bad guys, the bent cops, the press, and we're stuck by the side of the road. Oh, their car broke down on their way to the airport. I skipped over that. I'm sorry. So yeah, their car broke down, and they have like... All this money. And they're trying to, like, haul ass. To get to the airport. And then, yeah, so that's cool. Mm-hmm. Now where I am. A month later, they so they had to hike to a payphone, called a local private detective, whose wife then drove them to the tar- tarmac to a waiting plane. Imagine being that wife. Oh, my God. I would be like, oh, okay, sorry, I'm going to the kid. But just, like, white-knuckling it the yeah. whole time, being so nervous. Uh-huh. So a month later, in early February of 1965, Florkowitz was finally released from custody. On April 6th of 1965, Alan Kuhn, Jack Murphy, and Roger Clark pled guilty to burglary and grand larceny, complaining that, <laughs> that the thieves had not helped to retrieve the jewels. Najari asked for the three-year sentence, and the judge agreed, sending them back to Rikers Island. Stuck behind bars, the Beach Boys were furious at Pearson. Dick shafted us. That's what she said, says Murphy. <laughs> yeah that's what dicks do i mean anyways <laughs> i swear it's like it doesn't matter what story i do it doesn't it doesn't matter what we talk about what we oh are, i can find a way to say like it, it just but i feel like it it's not we don't even have to find it it's just there it finds us like dick shafted us says murphy yeah 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 he did what happened <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry I know at least one of our... Hi, Kendra. Hi, Kendra. Kendra likes my funny jokes. She'll be she'll get a giggle out of that, I'm sure. <laughs> or at least an eye roll. <laughs> he, Murphy, asked some of his friends in Miami to send a message to Dick, to this Dick Pearson. Some of my people tied him up and hurt him. Friends who didn't appreciate that I got more time because he didn't return the ruby. Yeah, fucker, if you would have returned the ruby, maybe he would only got two years in prison for doing grand. Instead of three. Yeah. <laughs> the police were aware that Pearson had a shady reputation, but were un- unable to link him directly to the case, so they couldn't prove that he ever had anything to do with the jewels. The story faded from the headlines, but a year later, Florida freelance writer Francis P. Ansel confronted Pearson about the rumors that the yacht broker had hawked the ruby to the Chicago underworld for a loan. According to a detailed summary of those events in a 1967 federal court ruling, Pearson hinted to Ansel that he might be able to contact somebody who could get a hold of the ruby if there was a possibility of immunity. He wanted a $25,000 reward, and he later wrote in his book Ransom and Jim's The DeLong Ruby Story. He and Pearson then made overtures to the authorities, but the prosecutors put kibosh on handing over the cash to an intermediate. Basically, they're not going to pay someone that they have no idea whether he's, I mean, he's, to them, a hoodlum. So they're not going to be like, yeah, I'm going to give you $25,000 and just on a chance that you might be able to come in contact with someone. Yeah. You know, no. like, sorry, bro. So, yeah, I feel like that's really all I need. 
Thank you. That was a good one. Uh, it, it could have been better if I wasn't a rambling person. It's okay. That's but, you. Yeah, I thought, I know. But I it's thought us. it was cool, you know. It was. Like, one of the biggest museums ever and just climb climb up in and sneakity sneaky out. <laughs> Steal all these jewels. <laughs> it's like, man, if I had a time machine. You could have done it first. Yeah, and then no one would have ever found it. How would they know? They wouldn't because I was a time machine girl. Uh-huh. And you could have blamed it on them. And yeah, it was those beach boys. Yeah. Yeah. I could have snuck in while they were there, let them do the dirty deed, and, and steal it all from them when they sneak you out. get it out <gasps> of the ceiling. Uh-huh. Oh, jeez. Anyways, we're going to get into my story. <laughs> okay. My story is like two seconds long. Oh, okay. That's probably to good. Compared to Brittany's 10-pager. You know, I just like to go along sometimes. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Anyways, we're okay. just going to, you know, go right, right past just, that. Just... Walk right by. <laughs> so Ignore mine, it. Yeah. So mine's called the Pine Barrens Forest in New Jersey. Oh, interesting. I'm, I'm going like to learn. You're going to learn something cool because I learned something. Well, cool. I like forest and I like New Jersey. Okay. Or at least the coyote, ugly girl version well, of myself we're, does. We're in a forest, though. We're not in the city. But I like forest, so that's yes. even better. So my uh, sources are only in yourstate.com and insider.com. I'm going to interrupt you one more brief moment and say that I didn't realize that there was forest in New Jersey. Well, that's why I'm saying you're going to learn something cool because oh. I didn't know that either. <laughs> I thought it was just like Jersey Shores. Yeah. You know, that's how know. educated we are. We're <laughs> cultured. Super. So the Pine Barrens Forest expands over 1.1 million acres. Oh, wow. I didn't even know New Jersey was that big at all. <laughs> Much less a forest there. Yeah. So, but it goes into like Pennsylvania too. So it's not just like gotcha. in New Jersey. But gotcha. They are preserved. So the this this the, these forests are preserved. Okay. So and, that's where all the creepies live because no yeah. one can mess with shit there. Yeah. And go across oh. seven counties. Oh, shiz. In 1978, Congress designated 1.1 million acres of coastal plain in southern New Jersey to be protected as part of the Pinelands National Reserve. This was America's first national reserve. It was oh, established cool. to protect the unique ecology. I did not know that. That's interesting. The area is covered in sandy, acidic, nutrient-poor soil. Oh. That is great for cranberries, <laughs> orchids, oh, okay. and carnivorous carnivorous plants. I said that so right. So like Venus flytraps. Yeah. That makes sense because, so sad fact, I bought two Venus flytraps thinking... And she killed them the end. <sighs> Anyways... We're going to... But I... Don't <laughs> okay. Okay. I turned your 10-minute story... <laughs> I turned your 10-minute story into a two-second turn. They died the end. Yes. <laughs> okay. They did die. But only because I'm dumb. They have to be, like, in a terrarium. So they have to have a lot oh, of humidity, yeah. and they have to have a lot of, like, rocky, like... Very nutrient poor soil that is acidic and sandy. That is what they need. They don't need. They, uh-huh. they don't need lots of sun, guys. <laughs> sun is bad for your Venus flight traps. That's what she said. Okay, so one of the first residents of the forest were the Lani. Um, I just got that. <laughs> I was like, that's what she said. <laughs> okay, that was not me. <laughs> Got a snort out of you. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Go on. So one of the first residents of the forest were the Lenape. 
Indians. Lenny Lenape? Yeah, Indians. I googled that, so blame Google if I said that wrong. Indians, they inhabited the area around 1200 AD. And then, of course, the European settlements came. And wiped and, them all out. And, oh, I don't know if they wiped them out, probably. But <laughs> that was like one of the first areas they landed. They were like the right. first gone. So, of course, the European settlements began springing up along the Malika River in 1694. Okay. The iron industry brought jobs and wealth to the Pine Barrens, with New Jersey producing much of the iron used during the Revolutionary War and War of 1812. Other industries that thrived in the Pine Barrens included glassmaking, paper, cotton, and clay production. Oh, However, cool. when coal was discovered in Pennsylvania, many area residents headed west. Communities were abandoned overnight, leaving oh. behind ghost towns. That's crazy to think of, you know? And some of the ruins are, like, super cool looking. And just to also think about how much fewer people there were to be able to leave ghost towns. Because <laughs> yeah. these days, like, no. <laughs> no matter how many people leave, there's still going to be, like, 40 million still there. Yeah. They left more ghost towns than almost any other states in the U.S. Along with the ghost towns, the area is known to have an abundance of ghosts and other supernatural creatures. Cool. Which I'm pretty sure... Sophie has covered this, but I'm going to have a little snippet of a cryptid. So the Jersey Devil, oh yeah, which I think she has, um, is probably the most famous resident of the forest. Legend says that the demonic creature was the 13th child of Deborah Leeds and was born in 1735. I don't know. I don't know. It was known as the literal spawn of Satan and is said to have wings and hooves. I feel like this would be funnier if her name was Karen. <laughs> With the horse-like head, claws, forked tail, and blood-curling scream, many South Jersey residents have claimed to have spotted this creature. Reports of Jersey Devil sightings date back to 1820 when Joseph Bonaparte, brother of Napoleon, not Napoleon Dynamite. No, Napoleon um, Bonaparte. <laughs> I've always thought that was an interesting name. So I did say that right? Yeah. Okay. So he claimed to have witnessed the Jersey Devil on his border in... Bordentown Estate, the creature was blamed for livestock killings in the 1840s and again in the 1920s. Because you have to have something to blame. <laughs> the most famous in- incidents of panic over the Jersey Devil occurred in 1909. In the month of January, hundreds of sightings were reported along with attacks in the Hayden Heights and Camden. Newspaper coverage led to widespread hysteria and a $10,000 bounty was put on the creature's head. And schools were even closed for a short time. Oh, shit. Wow. Yeah. So, of course, the Jersey Devil is only just part of the spookiness. Of course. You got all these ghosty towns. So, the ghost of a small boy is said to haunt the Atco area. He was the victim of a hit and run and still roams Burnt Mill Road. Many believe he is still searching for his killer. Which, okay, if he's a little boy, I doubt that's what he's, he's be searching for. His killer. for. Yeah. He's probably searching for his mom or, like, where am I? Why am I still yeah. here? Definitely not his like, killer. Vengeance is yeah. mine. But that would be kind of creepy. That would be real creepy. Um, if you drive down the road at night and turn, your, turn off your lights, you may just see a boy running for his ball. But it's not recommended because you could die because it's dark and... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have Anyways. headlights for a reason yes <laughs> there's a local tavern in one of the towns it's called the cedar bridge tavern the building marks the location of the last battle of the revolutionary war though the war had ended 
political instability led Quakers in the area to side with the Loyalists. The tavern is said to be haunted by the spirit of John Wildermuth, a former owner of the tavern. You never know who's going to be closing doors in here, said Renee Kennedy, who is a tour guide in the area. It is believed that this is the oldest intact bar in the United States. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a fun fact. That's pretty interesting. Because the forest is known to grow cranberries, they have... I mean, I guess cranberries (laughs) have to grow somewhere, but... Just you didn't think in a forest. (laughs) I don't know. An annual Chatsworth Cranberry Festival happens. It happens in October every year and celebrates all the local cranberry farmers. During a meeting of the festival committee, the group heard a small child laughing in the building even though no child was present. Another ghost that has been seen is the ghost of doctor of a doctor named James Still, who was brother of William Still, who wrote the Underground Railroad, who was also lynched for practicing medicine as a black man. His ghost is said to roam the area assisting travelers who were injured or stranded in the vast forest. Which is that's nice. He's still around to help yeah. the fellers out. You know, totally. Even though he was done wrong. Another myth of the Pine Barrens tells of a white stag that warns travelers of impending doom. As the legend goes, a group of Quakers who, on a stormy night in 1809, nearly plunged into the Batsco River, but they were saved by the spectral creature. This is kind of sad. This is the last bit. Um, Half an hour drive down a desolate dirt road stands a monument to a seemingly unlikely figure, Emilio Carranza, a Mexican aviator who flew around the world championing peace. Carranza was about to begin a tour from New York City to Mexico City, stopping at American cities along the way, but a fierce storm delayed his voyage. A commanding Air Force officer messaged him that if he didn't begin the journey immediately, his manhood would be in question. Oh, yeah. Well, apparently other things were... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So while looking for a place to land in the storm with only a flashlight to guide him, he crashed in the Pine Barrens and died. Legend holds that if you flash your car lights at the statue, you'll hear the plane and see Karanza's flashlight searching for a place to land. Oh, that's just tragic. That's so sad. It is. But that's all my story, guys. Well, that was a fabulous story. I'm kind of glad mine was long, though. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was not very long. Yeah. I thought it was longer. Sorry. And I thought mine was shorter. And actually... Even the shorter version was really long, and I had a short We evened it out. We did. Not on purpose, but hey, it worked that's out. Cool. Well, that's my story, guys. We're just going to let little Sophie hop on here and tell hers. Yep. Hello. Hi, Sophie. What you got for us this week? I got the Lizard Man of Scape or Swamp. Uh, of Scape or Swamp? Okay, cool. Okay. In the folklore of Lee County, South Carolina, the Lizard Man of Scape or Swamp, also known as the Lizard Man of Lee County is an entity said to inhabit the swampland of the region. First mentioned in the late 1980s, the sightings and damage attributed to the creature yield a significant amount of newspaper, radio, and television publicity. Professor of Religious Studies, Joseph P. Laycock, described the media frenzy the okay. subsequent cult will appreciation for this and other similar claims as following a predictable chain of events, a strange sighting, media attention, more sightings, followed by visits from curious tourists and monster hunters. Monster hunters? <laughs> monster hunters. That's a new one. I've never heard of monsters before. Of monster hunters. Researcher Ben Radford states, 
that this compelling story, but several important aspects wither under skeptical scrutiny. Okay. In July 14th, 1988, the Lee County Sheriff's Office investigated a report of a car damaged overnight while parked at a home in the area of Browntown outside Bishopville, South Carolina, on the edges of Scrape or Swamp. The car reportedly had tooth marks and scratches with hair and muddy footprints left behind. Sheriff Linston Truesdale noted that this was the start of various claims that eventually collided into a story about a wizard man in the swamp. Prompted by the news of the vehicle damage, 17-year-old local Christopher Davis reported to the sheriff that his car was damaged by a creature described as green, green, wet-like, about 7 feet, 2.1 2.1 meters tall and had three fingers, uh, red eyes, skin like a lizard, and snake-like scales. Two weeks prior, according to Davis, uh, he was driving home from working the night shift at a fast food restaurant when his car got a flat tire. But after fixing it, he saw a creature walking towards him. Davis got in the car and began to drive, but the creature was soon on top of his car, so it's fast. Yeah. He applied his brakes. Um, causing the creature to roll off the car, giving a, giving Davis enough time to escape. Coverage by newspaper, newspapers and media resulted in an increased attention for his claims. Local business began selling Lizard Man t-shirts, and the, the local Chamber of Commerce encouraged the media attention as good for the community. Oh, okay. The increase in newspaper and media publicity promoted further reports of sightings in the area soon became a tourist attraction for visitors and hunters. Local radio station WCOS offered $1 million reward to anybody who could capture the creature alive. I feel like that was a safe bet. (laughs) On August 5th, Kenneth Orr, an airman stationed at Shar Air Force Base, filed a police report alleging that he had encountered the lizard man on Highway 15 and he had shot and wounded it. He presented several scales and small quantity of blood as evidence. Or recanted this account two days later. He was arranged for unlawfully carrying a pistol and the misdemeanor offense of false filing a police report. <clears throat> According to Orr, he had hoaxed the sightings in order to keep the stories about the lizard man in circulation. Of course. Reports of the creature gradually declined at the end of summer. Local law enforcement officials speculated the sightings and were likely to have been caused by a bear. Oh, okay. I mean, I'm sure they're bears. But Why yeah. are there bears near swamps? Tearing up cars. Oh. I mean, I don't know. Why would they want to eat a car? Maybe they want what's in the car. How do they know there's humans in the car? Well, they probably aren't looking for humans. They're probably looking for food. Okay, uh, in 2008, CNN mentioned the Lizard Man legend in a story about a couple in Bishopville who reported damage to their vehicle, including blood traces. Oh. So another vehicle was damaged. Mm -hmm. The blood traces were subsequently found to be a domestic dog, though the local sheriff suggested it might have been a coyote or a wolf. In 2015, local television station WCIV featured video- photos and videos claimed to be lizard man, allegedly taken by unidentified individuals. In August 2017, the South Carolina Emergency Management Division sent a humorous tweet regarding as possible paranormal activity during the solar eclipse that passed over the area, hinting that people of Lee and Sumter County should remain vigilant for sightings, sightings of the lizard man. 
That's all I have on the lizard man. That's still a pretty fascinating story. Yeah. Oh, that was a good one. Thank you for tuning in on today's cryptid story. Anyway, thank you. Uh, goodbye. Bye. Thank you, Sophie. Thanks, Sophie. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. And you know the spiel. Go follow us, like us, and share us. Please, God, share us. Like, we like you guys, and you guys have stuck around. Like, we know, like, the ones that listen, you're here every week. And that's super. We love you. But tell your friends to love us. Yeah. Make them. Like, be annoying about it like we are. Well, she's not. Don't do that. I mean, don't really be annoying. But yeah. just And those that are that sharing us, thank you so much. We yeah, appreciate you seeing Because there are a lot of you and some of you that share every week. And every week we are very thankful for that because it really does matter. And it really does, it does. mean a lot. So thank yeah. you for your continued support and love and friendship because we need you and we love you. Bye. Oh, bye. And I- just, I just got to leave you with that awkward note, you know. That's what we do. Bye. 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 Like Sophie does. Okay, bye. Bye.